Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. If you are a loyal listener to this podcast, I think you know that over the past three years, I've had some amazing guests. But today, I'm kind of ready to jump out of my socks. That's how cool my guest is today. I was going to, the title of the podcast is going to be the lab test that can save your life, but we'll, we'll get into that. But first, some quick context. I'm a big fan of the author, Michael Lewis. If you haven't read any of Michael Lewis's best-selling books, you are missing out. But surely you've seen at least one of his movies based on his books. Now, I'm referring to Moneyball, you know, the baseball movie with Brad Pitt, The Blind Side, The Football Saga, and of course, The Big Short. Remember with Christian Bale, you know, the whole destruction of Wall Street? My guest today has two whole chapters devoted to his work in Lewis's most recent book, The Premonition. The Premonition is about the fiasco, unfortunately, of our federal government's response to COVID-19 pandemic. And Lewis weaves in another amazing story of how several people took it upon themselves I think they called themselves the Wolverines, to protect all of us from the devastation of the COVID pandemic. My guest today is Dr. Joe DeRisi. He is the co-president of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub and a professor and chairman of biochemistry and biophysics at UCSF. He's also a MacArthur Genius Award recipient. And addition to his incredible work during COVID, he is the inventor of Virotrip, Virochip, which I'm so interested to find out more about, which is an astonishing achievement in the microbiology to identify any virus, I think within hours, if not days, not weeks or months, as we have to usually typically do in medicine with culturing. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Joe DeRisi to the podcast. Thanks for having me here. Okay. All right. So I usually like, I started asking my my guests about their background, but I first have one little other important question to ask you. Um, if Michael Lewis makes his book into a movie, who do you want to play you? <laughs> Great question. Uh, well, I would, uh, you know, I think Matt Damon, my maybe born identity style, Matt Damon, that would work for me. Okay. I just, I gave this a lot of thought. Honestly, the person I think would be amazing would be Nicolas Cage, but. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Nicolas okay. Cage. Yeah. He does have a line in his past where he says he's a biochemist. So that's. Is that right? Good. Okay. So there's some kind of connection there. Um, but Dr. Dreese, yeah. So I, I want to get into a little bit your background too. I mean, it's interesting how you kind of were able to overlap different fields, which is unusual in medicine because everybody's so super specific. But again, with your background, sounds like nothing holds you back. Now, you trained in biochemistry, um, which is a little bit different than microbiology. So can you give me a little bit about your background and how you ended up getting into some of the work that you're doing today? Yeah, sure. You know, I did my bachelor's degree in biochemistry and molecular biology at UC Santa Cruz here in California. Great place, awesome mountain biking, awesome science, great place to do one's work. Uh, from there, you know, I jumped over the hill to Palo Alto and did my PhD in biochemistry at Stanford University. Right. And I was actually in the lab of uh, Pat Brown. Uh, you might know Pat Brown because he's the CEO of Impossible Burger. 
okay. and, and founder of that company as All well. Right. All right. Uh, but interestingly enough, Pat Brown's background is a virologist. He is a HIV virologist and wow. really did seminal work on understanding the mechanisms of integrase, the enzyme that inserts HIV into the genome. Uh, and that's why I joined Pat's lab is to learn virology. Uh, I ended up, uh, and while I did do some virology in past labs, certainly, I ended up actually working more on model organisms like yeast and things like that to develop genomic scale technologies. Uh, and that was really where I caught the bug for discovery-based research, for really having an open mind. Pat taught me a lot about just not having boundaries, not being stuck in a silo, how to do interdisciplinary science and to think in different ways. And, you know, if there's anyone that thinks in different ways, it's that guy. So uh, I had a great time. It was a fantastic education. And from there, I was recruited directly to UCSF via a fellows program called the Sandler Fellows Program. Uh, and that's a, it was really interesting opportunity because most graduate students do a postdoc afterwards. This was an opportunity to do sort of a super postdoc where they gave you a little bit of space, a little bit of funding, and some runway to do your own thing right out of grad school. So they and so I took that opportunity. It was made, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, uh, and I came up to San Francisco, uh, 1999, and I've been there ever since. And after about two or three years of being in the fellows program, I joined the faculty in the biochemistry department here at UCSF. And while it is the biochemistry and biophysics department. What I've really done most of my time here is work on infectious disease, yeah. microbiology, pathogen discovery, uh, in addition to a bunch of other stuff too, but really centered around the concepts of ID and infectious disease. Yeah, you know, it sounds like you're really, you put your hands in a lot of different areas. You know, it actually reminds me of Linus Pauling, who just also just didn't want to be contained. You know, he was a, obviously an amazing chemist or biochemist, whatever you want to call him. I mean, he, he just seemed to have his brain, his mind, you know, just nothing could hold him back. And he had amazing yeah. insights into things. Uh, you well, know, I, I appreciate being compared to Linus Pauling. I don't think I'm at that level, but well, yeah, he's a, he's a giant in the field. Yeah, he is. You know, it's funny that you bring this up because, again, also what made – obviously interested me so much about you as a person in, in the book was, you know, science, and I know this from going through my medical training, unfortunately, can be taught in a very boring fashion. It could be about <laughs> memorizing facts, you know, yeah. memorizing pathways, following the dogma of prior scientists. And in fact, Max Planck, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, you know, is very famous for saying science advances one funeral at a time. And, uh, <laughs> You know, Michael Lewis in the book really portrays you as an outlier, as you just mentioned, not not your average scientist. And I really love this. He said, I think your philosophy in tackling a problem seems to be summed up with this phrase. Hmm, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? You know, I never really heard scientists go at it that way. But I think obviously it picks your curiosity so just out of curiosity, do you have a scientific method when you're attacking a problem? Well, you know, one thing that's always driven me is curiosity. I, I, I get curious about a lot of different things, and I never really wanted to just be in one area and ignore interesting problems that come my way. If there's something interesting that comes my way that I think we have the tools or capabilities to make a dent in, and also maybe no one else will, then we're going to do it. And this really came into focus for me here at UCSF 
um, not just in our basic research, but in our applied patient-based research too, where, you know, many of my clinical colleagues who are uh, on service would have a, one patient or another who had some strange disease of unknown etiology. They were on a diagnostic odyssey, couldn't figure out what was wrong. And yet we were developing technology that I thought, hey, you know, maybe we could apply this to this. Maybe we could actually do something in real time besides just publish our papers and get the word out. Are there people that would benefit from our technology right now? And, and that sort of applied impact is very, very fun and attractive in addition to doing the fundamentals, of course. And so we've now really kind of made that our thing. I train a lot of medical fellows in my lab. They all have cohorts of patients on the wards and we're always on the hunt for interesting clinical phenotypes no one's figured out. Uh, our, our colleagues in neurology are a perfect example of this. Yeah. There's always a meningitis or an encephalitis where nobody can really figure it no, out. The no, patients it's so- had every diagnostic and they just don't know. Right. And it could be so dangerous. I mean, I, I will get to some of those things because that to me, you know, I actually read a little blurb in Scientific American. It's believe it or not, it's one of my still my favorite uh, journals to read. And I think it was about a case that you had done, you know, whether you discovered the cause of meningitis, which saved somebody's life. Um, and before I get into the next thing, too, it's just life is crazy. This morning I get uh, a call from the lab that a patient that I um, was in touch with about two, two days ago, two, three days ago, who's been pretty sick. And I did basic, you know, um, what we call CBC with a white count and everything too, but it was having shivering and shaking. And I, we had the lab do blood cultures and it just grew out E. coli. So, you know, we just, you know, it's kind of thing as a doctor, you know, you can't have the crystal ball unless we end up, we'll talk about the viral chip, that might be the crystal ball because you're guessing, you're trying to use your best intuition, but that's not good enough. And so many of the interesting cases that I've even read about over the years, it, it's, you know, where it takes quite a while, you know, unfortunately for us as, as clinicians to make the diagnosis without the best tools. Um, okay, I wanna go back to, cause this is also fascinating. It's talked about in the book. And uh, I don't know if you're well enough you know, in the country known for this, but I mean, really going back to the, the SARS epidemic, you know, this was before SARS COVID. One. SARS-1, we'll call it okay, SARS-1. This, you know, for all our listeners was before COVID. You may have heard of it. You probably should have heard of it, but it did fortunately only cause mortality in a relatively small amount of patients. It didn't become a worldwide pandemic like, you know, SARS-CoV-2. So going back to 2003, in China, there was a mysterious outbreak killing people faster, I think, than the Ebola virus. And we all know how bad the Ebola virus is. And one of the things mentioned in, in, Dr. Lu, in Michael Lewis's book was interesting how I think they sent somebody from the WHO, an Italian doctor, to investigate and find out what was going on in China at that time. And I think you were coming back from China around that time. And he dies during his time working there. And it turns out that it's a virus. And... You know, nobody knew at the time what the virus was, but you somehow got involved and figured it out. So maybe explain to the listeners a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, how you got involved and uh, what what you used to make that unknown diagnosis. Right. This is back in 2003, and technology's changed a lot since then. But at that time, um, you know, we became aware of this mystery illness 
There was actually an outbreak in Hong Kong. There was a doctor who came from China where they knew there was a problem, but the world didn't really know about it. And he goes to a wedding in Hong Kong and he stays at the Metropole Hotel. Um, and he inadvertently infects a bunch of people on the same floor of that hotel who then leave on airplanes to go to different places around the world. Classic spread of an infectious disease. Right. Um, and this was a very, very serious disease in that it really had a very high mortality rate. SARS-1, in some ways, was burns a little hotter than SARS-CoV-2. What we now know, which we didn't know then, is in SARS-CoV-1, the first SARS, pretty much everybody got it, got sick, had symptoms. In SARS-CoV-2, why this disease is so hard to contain is pretty good fraction of people don't have symptoms. And that is really difficult. It makes controlling the spread of the virus very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Now, when this thing came out in 2003, we didn't know it was SARS. We didn't know it was a coronavirus. Everybody's scrambling around trying to figure out what it is. We had developed this thing called the ViroChip, which is basically a glass slide in which we had imprinted the, 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 sort of the DNA sequences of every known virus at the time, which you know, is a couple thousand viruses that were relevant at the time. And the idea is we could take a sample and if there was a match on the slide, those sequences would sort of stick to each other because of the whole DNA base pairing thing. And it would tell us what viruses were in the sample. So it was a way of surveying thousands of viruses at the same time. This is before the advent of what we call next generation sequencing. Right. And now what we do is mostly next generation sequencing, which I can explain as well. Uh, we begged and begged the CDC for a sample because they were receiving samples from China and so on. Uh, they relented. They sent us a sample. It came on a weekend. There's a whole little. I know it's a great story. But just quick question, that. Dr. Easy. But nobody else had this viral chip. Is that right? I mean, nobody That's else right. had this, this technology. Was this was totally this new. This was unique. Totally new. Okay. Yeah. That's what yeah. it sounds like. And I like. had spent my graduate career at Stanford building those arrays. Right. Not I mean, for viruses, but to study model organisms and things. And when I came to UCSF, it was like, hey, maybe we could use this to study infectious disease. Unbelievable. I mean, just the thought, just for my listeners to understand, I mean, again, as I was saying earlier, you know, typically in medicine, what we do is we get blood, we try to get fluid, urine, et cetera, and it has to be cultured. It has to grow on what we call a medium, which could take days, some, I mean, sometimes hours, but usually days to get the result here on a glass slide, I'm just trying to picture this, is thousands of sequences of viruses, you know, that, and bacteria, because I know you've, you've made, and parasites, I mean, just yep. crazy. How, and again, I mean, sometimes you even think it would take 20 slides, but on one slide, you can get all of this, and then you, you put the specimen, whether it's a tissue or fluid, and it matches or doesn't match the, the sequence. Yeah, that's about right. What we actually do is we extract the nucleic acid from whatever tissue sample has been provided to us. So as you take the RNA, for example, and we'll attach fluorescent dyes to it. And then we put it on the slide. If there's a cognate match, it will stick to uh, that spot. Right. And we can see it on a microscope. That's basically how the chip works. Now, you might be asking, well, wait a second. How did you get a match for SARS if you didn't know SARS existed? Because there was no SARS on the slide. Yeah, that's what's amazing about it. <laughs> well, the trick of that particular technology was is that we imprinted on the glass slide all the most conserved sequences in evolution. So 
you know, it doesn't matter uh, if you're looking at uh, a coronavirus for a horse or a whale or a human, certain parts of the viruses are always the same. They're conserved through evolution. They don't really change much. And so we had focused on putting these evolutionarily conserved sequences on the slide, betting that if there was a new virus, it would still be able to detect it. And that's exactly what happened with SARS-1. We saw a bunch of bird coronaviruses, human coronaviruses, you know, and cow. And, and this didn't fit either bird or just human or cow or what have you. And so we knew we had something novel on our hands. We actually recovered a piece of sequence from the glass slide and sequenced it to prove, you know, that it was part of the SARS coronavirus and that it was a new coronavirus. This was uh, done with a, a really talented guy in my lab, Dave Wang, who did like all this pioneering work as a postdoctoral uh, fellow in my lab. And uh, my colleague here, Don Ganim at UCSF, an ID wizard. So this was really exciting. I will mention that we were just one of many groups at the same time contributing to this because, you know, at the CDC and other places, they were doing electron micrographs to see viruses right, and right, things like this. Right. But it all came together on one weekend, everybody. Wow. And it, it all proved the point. And that was uh, super exciting because it showed that we could we could go after diseases of unknown cause in an unbiased hypothesis free way right. so instead of i'm looking for x or i'm right. looking for y which is the way it's usually done yeah why don't we just look for everything right well it's working backwards which is a great way to do it because right because we're as even as good a clinician a good a, a, the, the most amazing infectious disease expert he's guessing you know he's using you know he's trying to get history details but sometimes also like i tell patients you know, that, that's where, you know, this, you know, computers and scientific method can really help assist because we have our biases. Let's say if a person came from a certain, you know, again, when I'm getting, when I see patients that have like what we call fever of unknown origins, okay, well, where did you travel to? You went to India, you went here, and I'm trying to come up with my realm right. of tests to do. I don't get to order right. a thousand tests in one. And right. I'm guessing, and I could miss the, I could be mistaken. It could be, you know, deadly for the patient. Yeah. Um, Do you have a pet at home? Do you work right, on a farm? Right. Have you right. been to like, yeah. you know, the zoo? Yeah. Right. You know. So it's. Uh, um, wanted to ask you. Uh, and, and, you know, that's really been the concept of all these ID projects I've been talking about yeah. is how do we free ourselves from those cognitive biases? Right, right. Because they, as much, you know, again, and I'm, I'm just sharing how, you know, we're trained in medicine, I guess, for various reasons. We have to be very practical. You know, a lot of it is, I guess what they call the term heuristic, meaning like we're taught a lot of rules of thumb. And I you know, honestly, over the years, I've been practicing over 30 years and I realized those rules of thumb can be dangerous. You know, yeah. Just because somebody's not overweight, over 60, doesn't mean they can't have a heart attack. Um, you know, or just because they didn't travel anywhere, doesn't mean in their local area, they couldn't have picked up some unusual infection. So yeah, it, it's dangerous. I mean, again, you, it's good to have a medical mind, but it's good to have a lot of things to back it up. I wanted to ask, and I don't want to deviate too much in this, but in this kind of work too, do you get the sense that even going back to, you know, SARS-1, that is it, is it, it's the jump from, you know, obviously an animal to human that's the unusual thing. And is it possibly through, you know, digestion or is it through inhalation? I mean, does has there been yeah. any more clues about that? 
Well, I mean, for coronaviruses or respiratory viruses, it's right. undoubtedly like a respiratory droplet transfer. Okay. Uh, it's, it's probably not a bite or blood or bloodborne or anything like that. I mean, coronaviruses love the lungs. They love your nasal passages. This is how they get by. Mm. This is what they do. And, you know, in, in SARS-1, we saw a clear linkage to bat sequences. And when SARS-2 first came out, you look at it and you're like, yeah, that's kind of like SARS-1, and it's a lot like bat sequences. Same game. You want to you wanna know where SARS-2 probably came from? Go find a wet market. Yeah. And, you know. So you, you don't think it's a, these, you don't think, I don't, I'm not a big controversy guy, but you don't think it's a lab created type of the, thing? The evidence, all the evidence I've seen to date does not support any kind of lab creation, engineering, whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a little silly to think we're that smart and that good. Whereas, let's look at SARS-1. There was no virology institute. There was no engineering. There was a wet market. Wet markets are where lots of different animals are all in high density, being slaughtered in the same place, blood all over the place. What perfect place to have a transfer of a virus. I mean, it's Disneyland for zoonosis. Yeah, that's a good point. A good point. I I think the only thing that add to the, to the mystery was it's like almost like if like this thing broke out near Atlanta near our CDC. I mean they had that Hunan whatever Huan Institute. But I I I'm hearing what you're saying. It does, you know, I don't know anybody's that smart create these things, especially when they know no, that you can't no, definitely not. not that too, just so when you know too, you can't contain something like this. It's um, yeah, very very difficult. Okay, so you really were really one of the original people or the original person to help uh, you know to make the diagnosis of, of SARS and obviously, well, you know, there's a team of global yes. people all at the same time. Okay. Yeah. I'm not Okay. Um, all right. The next thing, which is interesting in, in Lewis's book, which I'll just, you know, we'll have a little fun with, but it's, I think it's important is that once you made this incredible discovery, apparently your phone starts ro- uh, running off the hook and uh, you get requests for help. And I'm going to ask you a couple of things related to that. And you call it the red phone. Now I was going to ask, I think the only time I remember a red phone was like in, Batman. I think I think when the commissioner called the Batman, there was like a red phone and he had to pick it up and, you know, Batman came to the rescue. Um, how did you start to handle this? Because I, just so I understand, too, I think you're not a commercial lab, right? You're like a research lab. Because you, you mentioned this, I think, in the book, which is kind of difficult for a clinician because sort of like your hands are tied a little bit. I mean, if I had a patient, God forbid, you know, in an ICU somewhere and they had meningitis and they were sick and going down hills and I said, gosh, you know, I've heard of Dr. Joe DeRisi and his amazing viral trip, viral chip, and I, you know, I we have maybe hours or days to help this person. How do how do they get a sample to you? Or now, you know, obviously we're talking years later. Can, are other labs running this because it's so critical? Right. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit how it's done. So you're absolutely right. You know, the the emails and letters and phone calls come in. And they still do to this day. There's someone, somebody who knows somebody who's sick, who's on a diagnostic IFC and can't figure it out. This is sort of still a common thing. Uh, There is no actual red phone. Some people were disappointed to learn that there's not (laughs) physically a red phone in my lab that I have to tell them, like, it's a metaphor. (laughs) But I think I was thinking of the red phone, you know, not only in Batman, but in Dr. Strangelove and other movies, which is, (laughs) but uh, um that metaphor does serve us well. So, uh, our, you know, 
in about 2000, from about 2004 to 2007, we continued to work on the viral chip and tried to work towards clinical applications of it. And in 2007, we made the jump to next generation sequencing, which is kind of the viral chip on steroids, if you will. It's the concept that we basically sequence everything in a sample. So it's the same as the viral chip, except the viral chip does have some inherent bias in it because it is biased by what we put on the chip. Right. With sequencing, you're really just asking what's human and what isn't and using mm. the universe of sequence to compare that to. Right. So from 2007 onwards, we're using metagenomic deep sequencing to do the same job as the viral chip with a lot of complex bioinformatics behind the scenes. Is this the gene machine like you kind of talk about? I mean, so it's kind of a, it's not just a slide anymore. It's like, you, I don't know, you put it into a yeah, big machine. Yeah, you put, yeah, yeah, yeah. You extract all the RNA from a sample, cerebral spinal fluid, piece of lung, what have you. And you literally sequence the bejesus out of it. Mm -hmm. It sequence every little fragment that's in there. The task is looking for the needle in the haystack. Most of that stuff's going to be human. Right. I don't care about the human. Right. I want to get rid of the human. Right. What I care about is what's left. Right. And, and that's how we sort of pursue a lot of these cases now. And you're right. We are a research lab, although that changed um, a bit, um, you know, about a decade ago or so, where one of our, it was interesting. So the way research labs work is you could send me a sample. I could run my diagnostic thing on it. But by the rules of clinical testing, I'm not allowed to report that answer to the treating clinician because it's not done in a CLIA lab, like right. up to lab standards. Right. Uh, there's several workarounds where you then go do a separate CLIA test for the same thing and prove you were right, but that's a little circuitous. One of the very first cases where we really had a lot of success in this was a, a boy who had uh, leptospirosis, which is a bacterium. They didn't know he had leptospirosis. He had swum in a, in a freshwater lake in Puerto Rico got it up his nose. And, um, you know, he was going downhill pretty fast with meningitis. We were able to do this next generation sequencing together with my colleagues, Michael Wilson and Charles Chu, and figured out that it was lepto, which means the treatment's penicillin. Right. I mean, because just for yeah. listeners too, leptospirosis is like syphilis or also like Lyme disease, Borrelia, and not easy at all to culture out. It is one Very of those difficult. things, right? And uh, and you can yeah, definitely all their die cultures from were them. negative. They never yeah. detected it. Yeah, yeah exactly. And very complicated to to diagnose. Um, and because we knew the answer, we actually met with an ethics board because there was no time to do this clear walk around thing. Mm -hmm. And because the treatment penicillin was do no harm, they were able to treat him, and he made a full recovery, which was fascinating and, and great. After that, that motivated us to actually put this assay into a CLIA lab here at UCSF. So it is in a CLIA lab now here at UCSF. Any hospital in the United States can order this test. Just, you know, a doc can get on the phone and have a sample sent to UCSF for neurological infectious disease, cerebral spinal fluid in particular. How about other things like blood or tissue that's still we, also yep, acceptable? We, well, we have, we have blood plasma also approved. We don't have the tissues approved yet, and we'd like to do that because if you have a brain biopsy or a lung biopsy or something like that, uh, that's not yet validated in the CLIA lab, although we've done it in the clinic. So we've done tons of lung stuff, for example, BALs, nasal washes, you name it, we've done it. Uh, however, each of those indications 
needs to be independently validated in a clear lab. There's a lot of regulation to get it done. On the academic research side, we know it works. Yeah. And so we are going to be expanding this rapidly to other things. That I think we started with the neurological stuff because that's some of the really most vexing cases. Yeah, and the most deadly potentially. Too. And really serious outcomes. And the patients are, you know, cost a ton of money. They're in the hospital, the ICU for a long time. Right. They have really bad outcomes. So we felt we could do the best good, the like improve outcomes, lower cost, get the right treatment to the right patient faster. You know, I have a patient just to let you know too. I'm just curious, because again, I don't know if these um, testing is available, even I'm in New York. Like I have a patient that's had a chronic indolent fever for like seven months. Nobody can figure it out. And we've explored autoimmune and this and that too. And, you know, I mean, you feel so horrible for the family because this, this is a young teenager who doesn't go to school yeah. anymore or whatever. There you go. So something like this could potentially give us some idea. But Absolutely. Yeah, that yeah. would be a probably a blood plasma test. Or, you know, if you thought you saw neurological findings or something on MRI, you'd send, you know, a lumbar puncture. Yeah. Yeah. But those chronic fevers, those things like that, I mean, we see well, that a lot in... You know, you know, it's very vexing, just again, for our listeners to understand, because somebody would say, well, why can't you figure it out? And, <laughs> you know, again, I have like some infectious disease training in my, my fellowship. And the things that always caught us off guard were even abscesses, because sometimes yeah. they wall off the infection, but they slowly leak out and patients are, you know, whether it's in their gut lining, or I remember, I'll never forget a case I had a, in my residency of, a, it was a patient, um, that had kidney abscess and she was in the hospital for like four months. Nobody could figure out why she was having fear. They were doing everything. And it was, what was ironic was, I'm just gonna share this, the patient kept on urinating. Uh, the only thing they found was candida or yeast in her urine. And nobody thought that this was important. They're like, eh, it's a, you know, just some yeast in the tissue. It turned out she had a fungal abscess in her, her kidney. Was it candida albicans? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, there was a really similar case that we had here where Young woman lost the ability to walk, basically paralyzed bowel function. And there was an abscess in her you know, lower spine, something in her, pushing against her spinal cord. Right. But it was kind of like walled off, but it's a big abscess and it was kind of reaching up her spine. She was going downhill fast, losing, I mean, she was paralyzed. Yeah. And even on biopsy, they did a laminectomy, you know, and got in there right. and got a biopsy of that thing. They couldn't see any cells. They couldn't see what it was. They sent all the tests. They were all negative. When we sequenced her cerebral spinal fluid, it was Canada Dublinensis, another uh, Canada, right. but a rarer one called Dublinensis. Yes, yeah, I'm familiar with it. I've seen it on the skin on some patients. Yeah. So oftentimes, you know, uh, IV drug users or HIV folks, she was a young immunocompetent woman. It, and no one knew, no one think to lo look for that. Uh, and of course, when she got on, on antifungals, her situation dramatically improved. Can can the viral chip or the new genetic sequences pick up, you know, something like an abscess where things sometimes are walled off? Is that yes? It can yes, because even though they're walled off, these bugs will you know die at some rate, and little bits of their genomes will float off mm. into the fluid. Yeah, and not get cleared. So that's, that's what we're picking up. Not necessarily live organisms, but sort of the junk, the debris you know. of what had been infecting her spine. And that's what we can see. And, you know, she's all human except this Canada stuff. That's significant when it's right. in your spine. Yeah. I, I think your work, too, would be so amazing. And some of these patients um, with, quote, potentially chronic Lyme, et cetera, because 
you know, my background also in immunology, I don't think these patients are still infected. I mean, this is my thought on, with Borrelia, but it's somehow there's some genetic material that's like causing the immune system to stay on fire, you know? Well, that's a really interesting point. You know, um, the autoimmune side or the immune side of this is fascinating as well. And it is true that some fraction of these unknown meningitis encephalitis cases that come to us, especially the encephalitis cases, are not infectious. Like we do the sequencing, we got nothing. Like mm. it's all human. There's mm. no bug. Right. And in those cases, we're now developing technology to complement the sequencing to look for autoimmune encephalitis because those things can look like an infectious disease. The poster child for this is, of course, NMDAR receptor. Right. I was just about to say that, you know, just for, for listeners too who want to be able to follow this, there was a, a journalist who wrote a book called Brain on Fire. It is fascinating. Exactly. Um, and, exactly. Some, and some of these, just to make clinical use, some of these patients um, have, I believe, ovarian growths. I don't remember if it's tumors or cysts. Yeah, yeah. And they have teratomas. Right, teratomas, you know, which are, is actually tissue, it's embryonic tissue. It almost could have like a tooth in it or a piece of hair. <laughs> That's what a teratoma is. And these patients, you know, ended up in psychiatric wards because, you know, they showed signs of schizophrenia, psychosis. Yeah, and, right. you know, with, you know, help and treatment definitely changed their life. I mean, so, this yeah, is a situation huge. in which the patient appears to see ghosts, has hallucinations, right, all right. that stuff looks like a psychiatric break. And what it is, is an antibody against a receptor in the brain. Right. And if you give that person steroids. Organoglobulin, yeah. Yeah, that's another big one, yeah. And IVIG, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And so we now know that there's, this is the tip of the iceberg for that stuff. And it obviously brain on fire and NMDA, that's a poster child for this, but there's so much more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we're now taking all the ones, all the cases in which there was no bug. And we're like digging into those because it's the other half of the pie. We yes, don't want to. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. No, I mean, I, I you know, I, I get really excited hearing this because, you know, in medicine, I, I think that's what gets so many doctors. And I, I tell patients this, you know, especially I see a lot of really complex cases. It's kind of like what my practice is in New York. And so many of the patients are frustrated because they've sometimes seen eight or nine or 10 doctors. And, you know, they just, they're looking for an answer. And, um, and, you know, again, in my approach to it, you know, similar to yours is like, I don't want to be boxed in. I mean, I want to use my immunology understanding because it could be the immune system going awry. I want to use my infectious disease training, you know, the best I can. And uh, I also use some of my allergy training because sometimes it's something as simple as an allergy. Yeah. Um, sometimes it could be. Uh, okay, I want to switch topics a little bit because I think this is maybe almost as important as the viral chip. But remember, folks, it's the lab test that could save your life, honestly. I, I, as I said, I hope I have access to the red phone, but I hope I never need it. Um, you know, in the book, Michael Lewis talks about this, and I think this is frightening. You know, one of the, actually, the reasons I got interested in medicine back in college was I was reading a lot of the <laughs> New Yorker stories by this uh, writer, Bertrand Rocher. He used to write these medical mystery uh, short stories. And what he talked about, and we're talking back in the 1980s, to date myself, he talks about, I think it was Alex Langamore. He was like one of the original people that the, actually the CDC uh, be, you know, emanated from. 
because um, they were, I think they were based out of New York, but whenever there was a disease outbreak or some kind of epidemiological outbreak, they, the team was sent, you know, like a SWAT team to figure right. out what's going on here. You know, I mean, he wrote some very interesting stories. One was called Blue Men. It was when I think some oatmeal in some diners in New York got, you know, got like nitrates or nitrites in them, something that was causing these guys to turn blue. So yeah. a lot of interesting stories. And he did a lot with infectious disease. And out of that whole thing became the CDC, which now was, we all know, is based in Atlanta, you know, considered to be our, you know, our main source of dealing with outbreaks. But in Michael Lewis's book, it was pretty alarming how they handled everything. It sounded like they weren't the SWAT team. And it was, you know, again, you know, you know, not to put the onus on you, but it was like on other people outside of the government to get something done. So what do you think? And, you know, they even mentioned that Governor Newsom came to you and said, how do, how do we handle this COVID testing? So just out of your curiosity, I mean, again, let's say you would put it, I mean, you probably don't want to be, but let's say you would put in charge of the CDC. What do you think has to be done and have uh. they learned, you know, as far as, you know, dealing with outbreaks, because again, I, we will feel this is probably not the, the end. No, unfortunately not. You know, I, I think it's a great question about how we take a look at what happened during SARS-CoV-2 and learn the lessons of what went right and what went wrong. And mm -hmm. an awful lot went wrong. There's some stuff that went right too, like yes, vaccine development. Right. But a lot went wrong. And, um, I fear that if we don't take a pause and look at those lessons, those lessons will be forgotten and be business as usual. And, you know, if we were to start from the ground up and say, okay, what would we do different? How would we do this in the future? We got to look at the whole country and how we do business. One of the things that was most frustrating was the fact that we have county level jurisdictions of public health that don't talk to each other, have incompatible information systems, uh, and have basically infrastructure that varies widely. You can have one county with a really great lab, another county got nothing. Yeah, And it's completely uneven. Now, I understand that for local matters, the county level departments of public health make sense, but a pandemic doesn't care about your county borders. And as we dealt with a lot of the departments of public health throughout California in our, you know, 58 state, 58 counties, um, we often would run up against, well, we didn't know they were doing that or what information do they have? They were just so information starved. Uh, and we, our medical record system for the nation, you know, it's, it's a hot highly hot fractured. It's a hot what job. hospital uses Epic? Somebody right. else uses something else. They don't right. talk to each other. Right. Oh, my God. Aren't we like supposed to be the age of the internet and have all our act together in information science? You wouldn't know it by looking at our medical record system. Uh, and so why don't we have national medical record numbers? Good question. Right. You know, uh, the thing is also, which you brought out, which is so true, you, you know, that a lot of our healthcare system, again, being so private based, whether it's the pharmaceutical companies, it's everybody's got to have their interest that gives their helps their bottom line. And what we really need the government to do to step in like the referee and say, okay, yes, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, it's great. You guys are independent and can make a vaccine in a few months. That's amazing. But you have to set aside a certain amount of money for catastrophes. 
You know, it's even the hospitals. You know, hospitals, which was shocking and sad, was like during the COVID pandemic, they were in trouble and they were actually letting go of nurses and doctors because financially they were doing worse. Now you say, how could yeah. that be? Everybody's in, everybody's in ICU. Well, they're probably losing money, unfortunately, those ICU patients. And they're cutting back on their colonoscopies and all their other, you know, private, you know, the... Um, elective testing, which maybe right. make a, there's big margins. And right. I, I think that really hits home. And I, I know actually one of my friends and colleagues is, you know, one of the heads of infectious disease in New York. And I, I do know that at their hospital, they were at times like planning certain wards, you know, to be ready for and even like a biohazard type of issue. But that's what it has right. to be. And the government has to fund that. I mean, that's what we, we pay our taxes for. I mean, that's what public health is about. That, and Right, and public health has to be very strong. There are unfortunately probably other countries, smaller ones, whether it's South Korea, I don't know, Israel, other places that, you know, again, with their whole healthcare system, but especially their public health system is better funded and much better organized. Agreed. So, so that's where you and think that the- need something yeah. like that. I'll, I'll be honest, I think Americans are loath to pay for something like in taxes that might happen. Mm -hmm. And you see this everywhere. Like, well, you know, should I, you know, should I really get earthquake insurance? I know I live in an earthquake prone area, but it hasn't happened. So right. maybe, <laughs> right. maybe I'll just forego that. That's not great thinking. <laughs> no, that has we to see this in a bigger area. I'll point one out for your listeners. One of the big things on the horizon for us in public health or medical technology and all that is antibiotic resistance. Yes, yes. We no, it's know okay. it's there. We know it's coming. We know it's a bigger deal. Who wants to spend the money ahead of time to develop new antibiotics? No one. Because it hasn't like happened in a big way. In other words, if you're a yes, company, right. it's a, you it, develop a new antibiotic and you'd be forced to keep it under a glass jar and not sell it. Right, exactly. There's the profit margins in right. that. I mean, right. A, a, a pharmaceutical company would much rather have the next statin, cholesterol-lowering medicine, diabetes medication, which people take for life, whereas they know an antibiotic, absolutely. See, that's where they have to step in. I think, again, one of my other big ideas, and I'm hoping to get somebody on uh, my podcast. I was trying to get... Uh Dr. Dudna, but I don't know if I'll get a hold of her. <laughs> she's kind of yeah, busy. Yeah, she's a tough one to get a hold she's of. She's a little busy. But I think the CRISPR technology, you know, is going to be an amazing potential game changer for antibiotic resistance and maybe even in place of antibiotics, which would be amazing. So, but again, it's like what you're saying, you have to have, you need the, the private and the public investment because again, they could, you know, again, something like that could just be all steered toward the next good Botox shots, you know, whatever, yeah. right? You know, yeah. like, Whoa, how come we're not able to kill these infections that are uh, so dangerous? Um, and yet we know there's a tsunami off the shore. Yeah. It's going to land at some point. Shouldn't we be looking at that early? Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the so, other stories in the yeah. book, too, was, I mean, this was just like scary, frightening. It was like when they, I think you guys had called up because you, you wanted to do the COVID testing because you, you had the testing up and you were able to do a couple yeah. thousand a day and, da, 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 yep. and everybody needed the, the nasal swabs. And yep. so they go to the stockpile, you know, yeah. so like, okay, yeah, that stockpile that, you know, that has like how I would have in my office for all the emergencies. And they have regular Q-tips for yeah. the thing. Yeah. I mean, I was like, yeah, my jaw was, dropped. That was just terrible. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. That was just a disappointing, um, but less, you know, some lessons learned there about what's in the national stockpile may not be what you think it is. Well, you know, again, another question is who gets to check that? It's like, you know, I know in my office periodically, you know, I don't say I check it every single day, but I'll periodically go there and say, look, what's in the box? Do we have epinephrine? Do we have Benadryl? Do we have et cetera, et cetera? Because it's part of, you know, what you do. I mean, you know, medical people are, have, have to have the mindset to train for the unexpected and an emergency. I mean, that's just, that's what we yeah. do. You know, it's like, as they say, like, you know, with a fire, you got to run to the fire. You don't run away from the fire, but you got to be prepared. Right. You, better have, you better have your big hose, you know, when the, when the problem comes, you know. And in fact, we avoided some of those supply chain stock things, except for the swabs, you know, early on, because I had been in Cambodia and Phnom Penh in January to January 10th, came back through China and like, okay, something is really wrong. Like the airport security was super tight. There's all these fever boxes, very strange. Mm. This, you know, what had been like, maybe there's something weird, like with the new SARS virus going on, it became alarming to me. When I got back to lab, we said, let's do an inventory of everything we buy that's not from California and buy it all now. Mm. Right. And well, we that just, was another thing too. Remember the states were competing against each other for all these things again, a national policy, um, coordination. No coordination. I mean, we we at are all. the United we States of America. Through. You know, we, yep. we should have the resources and the cooperation to, because people usually do try to, you know, um, rise to the occasion. But I do also always love the line most people don't rise to the occasion, they fall to the level of their competence. So I think that competence <laughs> has to be in place, you know, to, for that situation yeah so yeah those were crazy times that's yeah. for sure well but i'm well, hopeful that we have learned some of the lessons i'm fearful that we haven't mm. and that these big problems structural problems that are normally beyond the scope of something like the cdc aren't getting solved like the information you know information and uh you know medical record systems for the nation and things like that yeah, my last question for you too i was just interested uh the Chan Zuckerberg uh, Biohub. Yep. What is a biohub? Sure. So we're a, a 501c3 nonprofit research organization that is joined at the hip to both UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, Great Stanford, okay. and Berkeley. Uh -huh. So the three institutions were sort of joined, and the hub is literally in the middle of those. And it's where scientists come together from those three institutions to work together on difficult problems. One of those things, I'll give you just one example of what Biohub does, is trying, and this started pre-COVID, this is why I was in Cambodia in 2020, starting to build a worldwide emerging pathogen detection network, an early warning radar mm. for pathogens. Mm. Turns out it was a good idea. Yeah, I think so. That's what we were building. That's what we were in Cambodia for in January is setting up one of our sequencing nodes so that mystery illnesses that come through clinics in low and middle income countries where disease burdens are high. We could use this new technology, not just in San Francisco, but around the world 
And all that information would be aggregated and flowed like a weather map, like a radar for right. new viruses. Right, because right. people don't realize, you know, they, they thought when they heard something was in China, let's just wall them off like an abscess. Yeah. You know, <laughs> good luck. Obviously, we didn't even Not see happening. it. We didn't even see it hitting us from the other side because a lot of these people went to Europe and they came back through New York. And, you know, so there's no exactly. such thing as walling off, you know, a respiratory infectious disease. That's probably almost impossible. So, So you're trying to set up these sort of these international centers so that you're able to get the information, communicate it quickly, and hopefully respond quickly. That's right. And it's paired with a rapid response team. And it's yeah. based on the grounds up. It's not top down, you know, Ministry of Health stuff. It's working with local clinics. So we work with local ID docs and clinicians in low and middle income countries that say that have the intuition. They're like, hey, those four cases of this weird encephalitis that's weird. <laughs> Back yeah. to the weird thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we should figure out what that is. Right. And having, you know, a thousand of those eyes around the globe doing the same thing and detecting and streaming that data into one place. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm going to need to wrap up, but this was an amazing podcast. I was not disappointed. I hope none of my listeners were because they said, Dr. DeRisi, the kind of work that he's done and contribution to making us all safer. Uh, is quite amazing. Thank you again for taking the time out of your super busy schedule to do this.